Hey gang, welcome to episode 190 of the No Proscenium Podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm Noah Nelson coming to you from the No Pro Studio in Los Angeles. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you. No, no, really, it is. This week on the show, managing editor Catherine Yu goes on the road to Baltimore for a conversation with four of the folks at Submersive Productions. That would be co-artistic directors Glenn Ritchie and Ursula Markham, as well as artistic associates Susan Stroop and Lisi Stausel. So that's everyone who's going to be on the show today. We'll get more into what you're going to hear in a moment. First, a quick announcement Oh, as I back away from the microphone and lean back in, um, tickets are now available for the LA Times Festival of Books. Uh, that's important because over on the news story stage on Saturday, April 13th, I'll be given a talk, a revised version of my talk on the art of presence. Tickets are free, totally free. You just got to register. And the fun thing about that is if you register this year, you get advance access next year to things that need tickets at the Festival of Books. The Festival of Books is this huge gathering on the University of Southern California campus. There are all kinds of authors who are going to be there. Um, I was going through the list. I was like, oh my God, this person and that person. And people, people whose books like I read back in junior high. Uh, are going to be there. Uh, I I still haven't been, so I'm really excited uh, and kind of agog that the first time I'm actually going to the Festival of Books, it's because I was invited to. Um, don't don't you don't you say hashtag combo brag? Don't you don't you do, no, don't you do that? Don't you do that? No, it is an honor, and uh, I'm I'm very glad that we get to go and uh, give this talk, and. You know, this has been a very educational year for me. So um, I, I hope you come down and check out the new learnings, as it were. Learnings. When did that enter the lexicon? Anyway, let's let's not uh, go too far here. We've got uh, a couple more things that we want to announce uh, to you. We're up to 228 backers on the Patreon, which is, that's rather exciting. And we're at $1,293. We're just seven bucks away from 1300 And that means we're $207 away from our next big goal, which is when we get to start socking away travel money for the team. There's a lot on the horizon for no pro and for the projects we do. And that's not even talking about, you know, the times when I, I get involved over on the Leia side of things. Cause that's, that's a whole nother jar of wax. That's not a metaphor. Um, <laughs> I do not write these openings. I think everyone, you know that, right? I, I hope you know that I don't, what am I supposed to say here? That I don't write the openings. Um, okay. Anyway, um, Two new backers, David Ling and Alex W. Thank you both. Um, it's it's great to see the number go back up, uh, particularly because the workload is going up too. And the sustaining backers of No Persinium, as always, are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurstan, Mark Baltazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. Thank you all, gentlemen, for everything you do to keep this ship afloat. Um, be part of the team. Uh, help us out here. 
because uh, uh, anyway, we'll talk some more about that uh, on the backside of the interview. I'm also going to talk a little bit about um, moderation over at Everything Immersive, how that works, um, who's involved, what's up. Um, just because, you know, people have questions about process and um, uh, I'm a lazy typist, so I prefer to do it here uh, as opposed to writing it out. And at some point I'll, I'll write it out. There's, there's, there's a bunch of things that, that I need to do to sort of, you know, get things codified in a way that are easy to parse. Um, also though, speaking of Facebook, change your passwords. Uh, it was revealed today. I'm just telling everybody I know. Um, uh, there were a few million, <laughs> I don't, maybe it was more than a few. I didn't read the wider article. I just saw the headline. Cause I'm one. Yeah. I'm, I'm like you. I'm one of those people. Um, apparently Facebook was storing a lot of passwords in plain text. This is true for Facebook and Instagram. So, you know, we changed passwords today. You should too. Um, I mean, you know, I'll go and be the IT nerd for a second and be like, mm, it's uh, usually a good idea to uh, change your passwords on a uh, semi-regular basis. But definitely every time there's one of these like things, just like, just do it. Um, it also gives you uh, a fun opportunity to, uh, you know, I don't know, drop some, drop some, drop some knowledge in those passwords. Uh, you might be a, uh, you know, weird string of letters and numbers person. Uh, you might be a passphrase uh, strange in this person. Uh, I'm little column A, little column B. And that's how I roll. Um, <laughs> you should probably now change all my passwords and how I make them. Oops. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Uh, you know, uh, give us money until it gets stolen by someone who, who cracked my password. All right. Um, that's enough of this for now. Here's what you're going to find on the other side of uh, my words. Catherine is going to get into topics like their devising process, making open world shows, the care and feeding of the audience, telling history at a slant, getting the audience to feel complicit during a piece, focusing on diversity and inclusion while making immersive work and making their productions more accessible. They're going to dive into a bunch of their past shows and they are prolific. Like this company's prolific. I, it is, it is one of my dreams for probably 2020 at this rate is to get out to the East coast, check out what submersive is doing, check out what Brickledge has been up to since last time I got to see any of their work, uh, you know, uh, hit up New York and and see a bunch of the, the the companies that have been innovating over there, right? So uh, let's 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 cross our fingers. Also, I could use some lucky numbers because the lotto is really big. All right, that's enough. Just imagine some people just like got scared, <laughs> and they should. Um, okay, uh, but just I'm just saying, think happy thoughts. Because it's it's massive. Um, I'm not kidding. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna take a break this weekend. Don't worry, I'm gonna re- restore sanity. Uh, it's it's needful. Let's go do this interview. I'll talk to you on the other side. Today I am on the road in Baltimore with four of the creatives from Submersive Productions. You might have heard of their uh, experiences like the mesmeric revelations of Edgar Allan Poe, as well as H.T. Darling's Incredible Museum Presents, The Treasures of New Galapagos, Astonishing Acquisitions from the Perisphere, or perhaps you've heard of their immersive episodic series that ran last fall, the Institute of Visionary History, which also included an eight-hour durational performance called A Horse by the Tail in the Night, and coming this April to the Baltimore War Memorial is Mass Rabble. So we're gonna go around the table and we're gonna introduce each one. 
Hello, welcome to Baltimore, Catherine. I am Glenn Ritchie. I'm the co-artistic director of Submersive Productions. Uh, I'm Susan Stroop. I'm one of the artistic associates of Submersive Productions. I'm Lisey Stosel. I'm also an artistic associate. And I am Ursula Markham. I am a co-artistic director, director. <laughs> of Submersive Productions. So Ursula and I are married and we share the artistic director role. And you also clarify. have a couple other uh, artistic associates who couldn't make it today? Right. There is Trustina Saba, who just recently joined us officially as an artistic associate, as well as Josh Teravis. And Michelle Minnick was with us from the start, and so she was uh, sort of grandfathered in with Lisi and Susan here as artistic associates, <laughs> or grandmothered in, I don't know. Grandparented in. That's probably a good uh, segue. How did Submersive get started? How did you hmm. end up in this immersive field? First, I was born. <laughs> then around the age of 12, my friends started to work on haunted houses and things, and then let's fast forward past a lot of that mess to uh, around 2013, I think, um, where Ursula and I worked on our first immersive thing with the scare house. Um, but we we had started going to, we, we had been doing this stuff at the scare house, mostly me as the uh, sound designer, but it was like working with a team to make a little world. That's what always excited me about it. And you made this, made little worlds, and they were themed, and they liked to create their own characters. So you had a character who was inhabiting a room, and the room kind of reflected who they were. You know, but then you had to scare the pants off of people, because that's the expectation of the scare house. So then, you know, you couldn't go too deep into the story. Um, in 2013, they, uh, after, you know, the sort of rise that we all sort of went through of, uh, the, the sort of rise of immersive theater becoming more popular and, uh, Sleep No More around 2011, 2012, a bunch of us went to it a few times. Uh, the first time we spoke was, uh, I was on the other end of this very microphone here and, uh, I was interviewing you yes. as a Sleep No More That's expert. That's true. Now the yeah. tables have turned on my podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was the Scarehouse podcast and we were like, let's do a podcast about Sleep No More because we're into getting into that kind of thing. Uh, that was 2012, 2013, we unveiled The Basement and The Basement was a series of, uh, fairly intense one-to-one -one experiences, uh, with, uh, you do either alone or with two people. Roughly classified as in the extreme haunt territory, but not quite as extreme as say blackout. But um, but that's still uh, you know a popular format in immersive theater. Um, but that's that's how we got our first start at Ursula and I sort of being on a team to create something that had not been done before. You know, or you know nobody that we knew had done anything like that before. Um, and that gave us the confidence to write a proposal and for me to write a grant for mesmeric revelations. And so that, uh, oh, now we're at 2014, where we got the grant to do that. And we're like, okay, so I have to go. We didn't know anybody in theater at the time in Baltimore. Um, we, maybe we knew two people. We started with those two people, and that led to two other people, and a couple other people quickly led me to Susan and Michelle Minnick. And so they, they were at the, the start of that. And we found in Baltimore, Baltimore is just an amazing place to be a creative person. You will find so much support for whatever you're doing. And so many people are just like, yeah, do it, man. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you know, they would be like, 
you've never done a theater production before and you want to do this and who are you? Um, that was, I'd never got any hint of that. And, and so, uh, you know, single carrot theater is, uh, is, that was established theater in town. And I was talking to some of them and they, uh, through that, they connected me to Lisi. I met Lisi through a show there and, um, uh, yeah. So we just sort of like started to network and sort of build our little cloud of, of uh, a little team for that show. And that show turned out to be quite a hit. Um, and that's after we did that, we're like, well, maybe we should form a company. And we, we actually did form a company for the remount of that show. That's when the submersive actually started. So late 2015, we did a remount. We added more people to the to Mesmeric. It got a little bigger, a little more fleshed out. And that's when Lisi first joined us and performed in that show. And yeah, from, and from there, we just started to figure out what do we do next? And that's... What's led us to today? Um, so, how big was the Edgar Allan Poe show? That you want to start describing it. So, the first iteration of the show, there were six characters, and they devised. It was all a collaboratively designed work. Uh, there were six characters, mm-hmm. and the show was about two hours long. So, they were all on their own narrative track, and there there was crossover between them, but everything was happening at once, and it was. Um, free roaming for the audience. When we did the remount in the fall, we double cast each role because we knew how long the run was going to be and we knew that we needed to... It was an intense show. It was an intense show for the actors. Very emotionally intense. Yeah. How many people are in the audience following these six characters? We had about 35 audience members a night. So pretty intimate. It was very Very intimate. intimate. And it was in an historic house, which the scale of the house meant that we knew, looking around, we were like, we're not going to be able to fit more than that. So it was was a very intimate show. And and because it was a house, it had that human scale to it. Um, We wanted to have a lot of close-up moments. Like, there was a lot that we liked about sleep nowhere that you can wander we like people to have choice but we also liked you know a lot of, then she fell also started you know around that same time that i started going to sleep no more and so i saw them pretty close together and i liked the close intimacy and then she fell um so we sort of wanted to have like a small audience but just give them the choice to follow whatever character they wanted and even in a small we found that even in a smaller space that that still worked like there were plenty of scenes that people missed, even though they were just around the corner mm-hmm. from it, and they were focused on this other thing. Um, and it, you know, it turns out you don't need a hundred thousand square foot warehouse to <laughs> to create a, a fairly rich experience. Yeah, a lot of the smaller companies don't end up doing things that are free roam or open world, mm-hmm. but that seems to speak to a lot of your productions. Is is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I, I I think we go with choice yeah. <laughs> more than not. Well, and I remember for Mesmeric Revelations, uh, one of the ways we were thinking about the roaming aspect uh, was the ability for each audience member to create their own narrative for the show. Um, and when we were creating with the six actors, we there each character had their own. I'll say use the word narrative arc, but it wasn't like a necessarily a logical storyline but everybody had their own journey um and then all the journeys sort of tied together in different loose ways um and of course everything was a, ri- a 
surrounding Edgar Allan Poe. Um, and so for each audience member, they could choose where to go and therefore sort of create their own narrative journey for themselves. So even in that small space, we also had things to, to look at and drawers to pull open and... Um, I mean, not as much as you can when you have a, a lot of space in a large building, um, but I think we were at least somewhat successful in giving audiences places to go and things to look at and people to interact with or ways to interact that allowed them to have their own journey. Um, and, and I think thematically with that show, it worked really nicely as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll also mention that um, because this was mostly on one floor, we had the opportunity to use the soundtrack to actually pull the whole show together. Yeah. So even if you're an audience member just following one character, you still have the presence of the of Glenn's amazing soundtrack mm-hmm. to sort of like give you that sense of the arc yeah. of the show. And also it was very helpful as a performer. <laughs> For <laughs> chewing. chewing. Yes. I would also say with that space, it did allow us, and with the free roaming, or for not quite free roaming, choices for the audience to go different places, it allowed us to transform the spaces over the course of the show to give the audience a chance to revisit rooms over and over again and maybe see them in a different light or that something had changed about them or the character was back in that room but something had changed about the character or maybe a new part of it had opened up. So I think in that way, a smaller space was helpful for the journey of the piece because the building, um, and this is true of all immersive shows that are site-specific, but in this case, the building really became a huge character in the piece Um, and the architecture that was already there, the architecture that we put into it, that we created became such a huge character in it. Um, And I think that was helpful for the audience on their journey as well. So Ursula, all these characters were devised, like that you guys are devising and keeping track of these multiple tracks. How does that, how does that work? What are the logistics? Because oftentimes at no problem get questions like, I need diagrams. Do I spreadsheet? Do I do this part? Like, how do we actually go about doing this from having a vision yeah. to making an open world? Which is why I think a lot of the stuff that I end up seeing is not open world. <laughs> right. Well, we have uh, a secret weapon, and it is called the sticky note. Sticky note. <laughs> and that, that it just seems so ridiculous. But we were trying to figure out because each character was devising within a world, but then they would have moments together. But then we had to start to do all of those crossings. And what we ended up doing is just spreading out the longest piece of butcher paper we could. And people just started slapping down in their narrative journey mm-hmm. some some tent poles, what we call tent yeah. poles. It's like, so here's the thing I do right. at the near the beginning of the show, I and believe, here's what I do at the end of the show. I think the instructions were, that we gave them at that point, because we were... I don't, know, I don't remember where in time we were at that point, but we had devised a lot of small moments, a lot of one-to-ones, a lot of just little things, a lot of it in Glenn and Ursula's house. Um, and at some point, there. actually, yeah, we did that in here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at some point we said, uh, yes, here's some sticky notes. You're going to write down moments that you think happened to you in the show that you enjoy so far that you feel are effective. So write it on the sticky note. And then we had a butcher paper that had um, the show sort of divided up into three sections. So almost like three acts. Um, and and we had a couple of tentpole events. So we had uh, a ballroom scene and we had a seance scene. And we knew about where those were in the show. And so we put those as tentpoles and we said, okay, you put down where you think those things happen in relationship to uh, along the butcher paper and everybody did it separately. And then we ended up seeing patterns 
of what people had done and were able to devise big group moments based or or small interactive or moments, moments or pair mm-hmm. moments a lot of times based on what had happened with that sticky note exercise and we have just stuck with that ever since. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sometimes the simplest tools yeah. are the best. The other thing I often wonder, um, especially as a reviewer, is when I'm curating my own experience, I know what I'm drawn to. And sometimes I wonder, did I make the right choices? Was that experience fulfilling or not because of the design or because of my individual choices? So to me, there's this conflict between giving people a lot of agency and choice, but also making sure that they have a good experience. Mm -hmm. How do you balance that? Well, actually, um, moving on to another production, uh, we saw that some some audience members maybe uh, weren't as well suited to this sort of like open flow, like choose your own adventure sort of thing, um, and decided to try a more, to have a more of a, a sort of spine structure for H.T. Darling's Incredible Museum. And so that frame ended up being like a program of events that you would encounter at the opening of a museum exhibit. And so like we the had party like, kind of had a program, right? Yeah, we gave them, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We gave them these little touchdowns. Yeah. And, so, and so that was like an option if you're the kind of audience member right. who likes to like see what's next and like go to all the scheduled things. Or if you're the kind of person who likes to like follow that character that's going around the corner and see what's in the back room. So there were, I guess, more options, I feel, for yeah. the kind of experience and, like, how, how you structured it. And, and of course, it totally unraveled, like, the last right. oh, yes, couple right. of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, but that, I think that that desire in us to explore that audience type, the type that maybe needs a little bit more structure, lent itself very well to being the spine of the structure of H.T. Darling, because yeah. it was a museum opening. And so we said, well, we would need a schedule of events anyway. Mm-hmm. So let's use that as an audience structure. Um, and so to your point about um, we, when you're wondering if uh, the journey that you went on was the right one, or how, how do we find that balance, is that we're, we are trying to plan for a lot of different audience types. And I think something we learned to go from Mesmeric into H.T. Darling was that there are a lot of audience types and sometimes an audience member is ready from the get-go to run with the character or they've been to an immersive show so they know what's going on and sometimes they're not. Mm. But maybe halfway through the show, they are ready. Like they, mm. they have bought into the world yeah. and they're ready to be led <laughs> somewhere else. So part of our working as an ensemble when we're planning for audiences is not trying to just create different tracks, um, but making different choices, but also training every, like with all of the actors to start being really observant of audience members. And so you, you can use, you can often kind of see when somebody's ready to go with you, if it's an instance where you're trying to get one person, um, or just to be observant of like what people's body language is. And if, if it seems like they're ready to be there with you, or if they're just sort of standing apart from you, that there's still a way to connect with them um, even if they don't, even if they seem unsure. So I think there's part of what we layer into the content of the show is connection to the audience in like every single moment. Mm-hmm. So like, where is the audience in this moment and why are they, why is it essential that they're here? Um, and what is your character's relationship to this, to the audience or possible relationships mm-hmm. or what are some scenarios or what are some ways an audience might react in this moment or what might they bring to you and what can you bring into this moment? So you're having, you're going through the moment together or going through the scene together um, as opposed to just like it's an actor and an audience watching. 
But I think it's also important, and we do think about this a lot, to be generous to both those kinds of audience members that will take your hand and come with you and have the one-on-one, and to, like, so-and-so's uncle who's going to sit in that one chair in this one room and just, like, see what goes by. Yeah. And um, it's a real challenge to think of, especially a show like H.T. Darling that was on four different floors, and, you know, trying to connect this narrative mm-hmm. all together and make sure that that guy on the bench has just as a rewarding of an experience mm-hmm. as, like, the person who's following one character yeah. around the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so with the, with, when we're, when we're devising and when we're working on the, the acting, the performing part of it, um, it's sort of deputizing all of the actors to be directors of their own performances in some way. So it's, we've used the term, like, thinking cinematically. So thinking, like, that there's always maybe eyes on you. Um, maybe somebody sitting behind you who is who is there just to observe and they're going to see what happens in that room, but that you have a connection with that person even if they're looking at your back. Um, and so how, how can you, even if it's not uh, with words or with gestures, how do you make that a moment between the two of you? Or how do you make this a moment that could be between you and an audience member, even if they're far away from you? It's like, like a viewpoint thing. It's like Ann Bogart's viewpoints, where it's like, how do you create a connection over distance, um, even when it's, there's no touching or no speaking involved? Could someone tell me a little bit about the concierge at HT Darling? Oh, Where did trash. that come from? Because I found that that was also a really nice design touch. If someone didn't know what to do, they would go talk to Josh. <laughs> you yeah. would go talk to yeah. Josh, yes. Yeah, we also had the two uh, gift shop workers, yeah, all, when, Bertie and Bertie. Bertie who Bertie. were also interacting before the show even started, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. As soon as people walked in the door, they were there working the gift shop. And it was a legitimate gift shop with some fake things in it that they can riff on. And people could go downstairs any time. They could get a drink if they needed to, and they can talk to them. And there was some scenes happened that mm-hmm. went back down in through the gift shop. And there were some little scenes that happened in there, so you could end up following a character back through there. And they were part of the, the story. And there were some one-on-one. They would, if you kept cut at the right time, they would take you on a one-on-one into the back room involving a, a rhino. <laughs> we did. I think yeah, part um, of the, the, full size. Yeah, the need for that was... And we did find this in Mesmeric Revelations, and then we were able to build on that for H.T. Darling, of having some characters who, just sort of like theatrical term of like having one foot in and one foot out, who could always break character if needed. Um, and so it, it, it would mean that the actors in the show who were playing full characters uh, didn't have to worry about assisting an audience member if they were having an emergency or those kinds of things. So we had guards on the upper level and sometimes downstairs level, but then we had the concierge and we had the two gift shopkeepers um, who could improvise a lot, but also could just be, you know, humans of the current of the present world to help people if they needed help. They could be spoken to, they could be asked questions, um, and it was a way, uh, an, in, sort of a way for the audience to be invited into the world without feeling too much pressure to perform because they were just talking to a person and improvising with a person. Yeah, and um, I feel like a lot of what we've learned in the in the years that we've been doing this, and we've only been doing this for three and a half years. I can't believe it. We've um, done an absurd number of shows in three and a half years. But the care and feeding of the audience mm-hmm. is absolutely critical because if they feel like they can play, they will mm-hmm. play. But they're very wary when they walk in the door, mm-hmm. for the most part, not everybody, but they're very wary in the beginning of like, what is happening? How, how do I do this correctly? And so having those kinds of characters, those one foot in, one foot out characters, it just, it's, it's some sociability that puts them at ease. 
It's, mm-hmm. you know, we're here to help you, and it's going to be great. Right, right. And we also had two museum guards in that yeah. show. And one was sort of like, it was sort of like a good cop, good cop bad, bad, bad cop set up, but one was sort of like giving people... And also a stage manager mean, mean as well. And a stage manager who looked like a guard. A stage manager like a who was in the show. Yeah, yeah. Who was, had a special yeah. expertise in weapon. In weapon yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> Museum guards were like hitting light cues and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So they yes. had they their feet in all sorts yeah. of worlds. Yeah. Light and yeah. sound cues. Yeah, there was no centralized sound in that show, so it was just all these separate... Like mostly eye devices and other devices that triggered. <laughs> and, um, everywhere. And I've got my head in my hands right now. <laughs> it had thirteen different sound sources, and um, that that was not a continuous sound thing because we wanted to have sort of pockets where the performers could improv a little bit and sort of meet the moment, whatever was happening, and then we would graduate to the next scene, and then some scenes sort of locked into the soundscape and some the soundscape was more variable and just sort of background. So that we sort of used all sound in all different ways in that show. You should probably mention that you have a background doing I am the, sound I am the, yeah, the resident sound designer. For, yeah, and I've been doing this for It's been a, a long, long residency yeah. for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and another design element that I wanted to ask you about was the name tag. <laughs> oh, Susan's got this look of joy. I just face. love the name tag. Where, now I'm trying to remember where it originally came from. Early meetings. Early meetings. I do remember in a very early conversation that we had about if this audience was a, a, a public or an unseen audience to the actors. Um, in Mesmeric Revelations, each a uh, character, each actor had a different relationship to the audience. So some of the characters could see the audience immediately and interact with them immediately. Some of them couldn't. H.T. Darling was a very different setup in that it, because it's a museum opening, it was a public world already. And I do remember a long conversation we had about um, eventually coming to the idea that the audience themselves were the museum goers and they were the VIPs invited to that museum opening, um, which made them visible to every character from the moment they entered the door and created a very, a very, uh, a very foundational relationship between the, the characters and the audience from the beginning. So I think the name tags came somewhere out of that, but I don't remember yeah. exactly where. I would say that actually like status was a big theme for the entire show. So like HT Darling is sort of at the top. We had this whole hierarchy of the cast. <laughs> the natural know, the, order of the things. Natural yes. order. Like, they put everyone into like casts. It helped sort of up the ante to put the audience in this this really like mm-hmm. high regard, this high status. You know, they all had these really bourgeois names and, mm-hmm. and um, it implicated them and what was going on, yeah. which is basically horrific colonialism. <laughs> yeah. Made and, fun. And, were, and but it was these beautiful like leather and ribbon and there was script like scripted writing it was like yeah. her majesty the blah 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 Crystal <laughs> the third like we yeah. did have all of them are very fancy looking in yeah. one of our um uh, dress green, rehearsal. Our dressing room or dress rehearsal a couple of our rooms we had a crash room where people just put their stuff and we did I do remember we had a board 
with sticky notes um, where people, if they thought of a name, they could just write it on a sticky note, like the cast members, if they thought of a name, could write it on a sticky note and put it on the, the butchered paper. Um, and if so we could have a giant collection of names. So you're just know. making up Game of we Thrones. Were, yes. <laughs> and at some point we did have a really intentional, we looked at the names and we were like, these are all really white European names. Yeah. So we want to make, we want, because we want a broad audience, but we also want people to see a broad set of names. And so from which to choose, from which right. to choose. So we did some dramaturgical work and we also, um, some, the people in the cast brought names from their own cultures of what would have been high status names. So it did require a good bit of research on our part to be like, well, what were high status names in this culture or this culture or this culture? Um, and that made it, uh, a, a much more, I think a multicultural and worldly, uh, set of elite, <laughs> elite names. <laughs> we're also yeah. thinking about, um, the ways in which names are gendered. Yeah. And so we spent a lot of time, too, thinking up names that could could be that any, any, gender, people yeah. any identity that right. you had, you could be judged so-and-so. But right. of course we had people choose different identities yeah. no matter what. So it yeah. became a really interesting game-like element. When you first yeah. came in, it's like, oh, I get to play a part and tonight, I'm going to play this role. Yeah. And it was great. Your, your look of joy. I thought you were going to bring up Dr. Johnson. Oh, my God, Dr. Johnson. <laughs> Dr. Johnson came from our, our dress rehearsal. We, we invited this, uh, this group of students from a, a local charter school. High school students. High school yeah. students, drama students. Arts, they, arts, arts school. Arts, yeah, art school. Mm-hmm. And, they, um, and, and one kid, he was just like exploring every corner and trying to like crack the code and do all the stuff and like at one point our uh, our character G, who's gt the, the groundskeeper GK, yeah. gk groundskeeper handed uh the flashlight to him and told him something and went running upstairs i'm like what the hell's going on <laughs> so I, I just sort of you know followed him upstairs gently and just sort of watched and he was just exploring like really intensely and he was just sort of pushing every possible boundary of the show and we and we his last name was johnson so we 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 made the character dr johnson but we, that's become a type oh, no, that's, of audience member. That's why he, he wrote that on his own name tag. Oh, he made his own we, name tag. we didn't have the name tags finished yet because of the test audience. Yeah. So in order, actually, it, it became sort of, it, everything can be a choice. It became a choice <laughs> for these high school students as a way for them to get into the world. They made up their own name tags. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the kids wrote these really long, elaborate names. And this kid, who was one of the only boys in the group, Literally, he just had the word Dr. Johnson written on his name tag, where a lot of the girls had written these, like, seven-word titles. He's just said Dr. Johnson. <laughs> the curious thing about the name tags is that certain names would attract certain audience types. Right. And Dr. Johnson always was trouble. <laughs> always trouble. And so, and so from that, even though it was his just written on there, he made such an impression on the cast because he was, as Glenn said, was pushing every single boundary we had. Um, which and is so, great for a dresser. Which was great for a, a test audience. And so we had, we added him into the formal name tag set just because <laughs> it was, he was so legendary. But um, many, many evenings, Dr. Johnson was chosen oh as, and it was always, everyone said, Did you see? It was Dr. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, I've been to um, shows where maybe you have like a character foisted on you, so that does bring me great pleasure. That like, oh mm-hmm. yes, like this does seem like a meaningful choice for me to mm-hmm. choose my own name. Um, going back to something that you were saying earlier, Glenn. So we we as the audience are all kind of these like highborn noble royal people, and we're actually complicit in what's going on so mm-hmm. the the subtext of hd darling i also find fascinating if you could talk about that um 
Well, so a little back, a little bit of my background is um, before I uh, came to work with Glenn and Ursula, um, I have done a lot of experimental theater, particularly for me, I've always had a passion about what the relationship between uh, the performers and the audience is and doing site specific work and having the audience travel and be and, and be in some ways either made uncomfortable or implicated in the show in some way. Um, even if it's a proscenium show, it's I, um, I like thinking about that relationship. So with this one, um, it was Lisi's concept. Um, and so when we started getting into the world of the show and it being something from the 1900s and about an, or early 1900s ish, um, and about an explorer who was bringing back all these specimen. I mean, that is, you know, colonialism is, it's just right there and we can't ignore it. Right. Like the history of museums is the history is, of yeah. colonialism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, worth, um, it's worth mentioning that that is where we started. And we, I think we found out that we had the peel pretty early on in our conceptualizing. Um, mm. And we started with researching the history of museums and how right. they started out as being cabinets of curiosity mm. that often belonged to these illustrious white men who had mm. gone to other countries. So and they like sent other back. people to other countries. Right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. Stolen and stuff. Stolen things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that seemed like the story we wanted right. to tell in the peel. Yeah. And so then um, the question of uh, when we came up to who is the audience, um, I I was definitely interested, and I I know other people were interested um, in what was the not only what is the audience role in that you had a name tag with this name on it, elite name, and you're coming to the opening, but what is the role of a museum goer in now certainly in the present day, but also in the past when you're coming into the space and you're observing all of these specimen or people and and uh, and just making the audience think a little bit about what their role is um, and it was also something I was interested in exploring from these uh, from mesmeric revelations of uh, in immersive pieces of sort of putting a, just a little seed in the audience's mind of what is their responsibility in this world so that it's it's not just you going through it like a video game and and you get to play with everything but like what 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 is what is your responsibility mm -hmm. to the world also mm -hmm. um, to the actor the characters that you're involved with um, and so that was definitely a part of HT Darling not just in what the audience's role was but over the course of it of how did how we developed the audiences or tried to develop the audiences relationships to different characters um, right. HT Darling to uh, Akumaxila the humanoid specimen um, to Percy to to all of the characters um, how we sort of steered their narratives and how their narratives unfolded to the audience of of hopefully having the audience's perspective about that character change over the course and therefore what how they how they had interacted with the character mm -hmm. and what their responsibility to that narrative was um, I think it was most effective with Akumaxila. Um, because people didn't know who she was, and then there was a certain turning point where suddenly people felt implicated in different ways, um, and that was intentional. Yes. So then, last year with the Institute of Visionary History, we even we went even about as far as we've gone so far with bringing the audience in in a specific way, and we we went through this whole elaborate induction, and that um, in the in really thought about you know what are they experiencing and what's the why are they there, and then we came up with the idea that. The, they're researchers, and they're going into this room that's essentially a machine to give them an experience, and it's meant to uh, uh, answer a particular question. Not the experience itself, but the, uh, we give them a particular question before they enter, and then 
by the time they leave, the question is just supposed to arrive to them, and the it's, answer, they're not yeah. the answer supposed to the answer supposed to arrive in their own minds. It's not like they're told by anybody at some point. And we got a lot of really interesting responses, yeah. and then we had afterwards had the debrief. So the whole thing was about like we designed this experience for you to do this particular particular thing. You're, you're challenging people, giving yeah. them yeah. like 45 minutes to an hour to really interrogate this experience mm-hmm. and then seeing mm-hmm. what happens after. Right, right. And then they actually spent some time about a, but most people spent about a half an hour in debrief discussing and writing, you know, answering a little questions, but then just talking with each other about what they thought happened. And that was just in one room. Like everything took place in one room. And they were allowed to sort of move around the room as they wanted. But a performer was in there going through a little story, a little sequence Mm -hmm. that lasted 20 to 30 minutes um, for the first five episodes. And then the the sixth one was The Horse by the Tail. (laughs) And that one was, it was eight, their performance is eight hours long. The audience of 12, that was um, just by necessity kind of had to be seated. For uh, most of the time, the audience was seated, and then they were brought in. Every hour, there was an interactive piece, and they were brought into it. So, um, but there was, we thought a lot about that one, too. Like, who is this audience to mm-hmm. to these performers? And the debrief experience was a little bit different in that one, because... Oh, right. There was, <laughs> <laughs> so, what, so let's back up a second. So the setup of Horse by the Tail in the Night... What, what yeah. was happening? So, what, 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 <laughs> what was that? happening? Okay. Tell me, Lisi, what so was going you on? You performed for eight, the whole eight hours. Oh, yes, it was surprisingly refreshing, actually. <laughs> <laughs> only, only because of the coffee, I got an hour five. Um, no, but it was it was a brainchild of um, myself and Francisco Benavides, who played the groundskeeper in H.T. Darling. Um, yeah, and it, it basically just started as this kind of, like, experiment that we wanted to do to see if we could um, tell all these stories we wanted to tell uh, in a durational piece and approach Glenn and Ursula about it, and they were miraculously okay, like, <laughs> from the get-go with it. And um, um, basically it's these two sort of Italian high renaissance obscure aristocrats and they are stuck in this room for who who knows why um and they've got they they sort of have a luxurious table setting with food that they share with the audience sometimes and we go through these cycles of telling these four different stories over and over again but kind of in different ways each time and um it is sometimes a sort of voyeuristic experience for the audience and sometimes they're like literally playing a game of chess with us at our table. Yeah. Well, but a made-up game. A made-up game. It's not real chess. A chess-like game. A chess-like game. Wooden yeah. pegman. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, a very cool thing about that show was that we had a, the debrief room right across the way where Glenn also had his sound set up. And so he was doing a live sound in response to what was a, a live feed of our performance projected on the wall in there. So that was a way that people, even if they couldn't be in the room for whole, for all the hours, or they just paid for one hour, they went into the debrief, and they can still keep watching it. They can and, stay, they can stay as long as long. And it also just verified and just sort of clued everybody in, like, yes, it does keep going. But then they also uh, were able to, like, it was like looking behind the curtain, because some some people, while they were watching it, realized, hey, wait, why does, how does the sound know to do what it's doing? <laughs> and like, I, the sound is so responsive. It's very responsive. Right. Oh, it turns out there's a guy. <laughs> yeah. There's this guy in the this other guy. room. <laughs> and um, he 
yeah, I had this like pretty elaborate sound set up, and I was playing guitar at some points and playing other. I have a theremin and a, and a washtub bass that was bowing and making weird sounds, and then I had my computer and an iPad, like all kind of feeding into this big DJ mixer, and I was just watching them on this ginormous screen, and we had it's only Francisco's that ever fell into oh. it. Yeah. the tight bodice, right? <laughs> Bodice, bodice but, so, you know, pro tip, you're going to have a microphone. <laughs> you have a bodice. Have a bodice. Tight bodice. <laughs> and also, I should mention that Ursula, bless her, was behind the wall for all eight hours. So she was running the running lights. Running the lights. Yeah. yeah. We, so when we say behind the wall, the Institute had this fake wall along one side. It was a cabinet, yeah. And, there was, and then there was a cabinet. It was basically a puppet. Yeah. The, the wall was like this giant, we, we thought it was a giant puppet with all these levers and stuff that it could do things and where you could put stuff into the world through different holes in the, the wall with cabinets that open up. And then there's a cabinet with two mirrors in it, and that was a two-way mirror that, that the stage manager, whoever's running the cues, could watch just right there. And we had cue lab set up there. And we were just, uh, once it was all programmed, you could just hit the space bar for the next one. Now, for A Horse by the Tail, uh, it, was a, it was a little more loose. It wasn't like... Uh, cued off of right, you know, not single like lines. a series of hundreds no. of cues, right? Like you, yeah. we were basically the all the, the other episodes. We were basically able to do it like you would uh, a theater show where there's certain lines, trigger lines. And you mm-hmm. just sort of mark a script and you say, okay, this is when I hit the space bar, and um, and then a sound or light or both thing happens mm-hmm. or projection. We also have projections in the room. Mm-hmm. So Ursula was doing the the lighting and projection, but she had to kind of feel it out. Well, we were we were. Probably at least fifty percent improvising. Yeah, right. Yeah, it was. Well, and then I, 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 was Susan was also Maria, there for eight right. hours. Yes. I was there for eight hours, um, and I, Maria. we had given Maria. me a character called Maria, and I was the, the really the only person who could move in and out of the space. Um, freely, I guess, is the best way to put it. Um, not just like into the world and out of the world, but also I wasn't necessarily stationed like Glenn and Ursula were. Um, I had my little food station, props and food station table in the debriefing room, which was another kind of fun behind the scenes thing the audience got to witness because it was a giant mess. And I just had like <laughs> all of my food things I was preparing and we were oh, running in and out. And we were, just, you were preparing the food she was like for, the them. Name. for yes. them. Yeah, she I was, was the jailer. I was their ways. jailer or their <laughs> servant or I don't know what you would want to call it. But I also had my phone with me the whole time. And so sometimes Ursula and I would be texting about a moment, particularly in the last hour, because the last hour was mostly improvised. Insane. In, and it got pretty insane. And so we would be texting about like, okay, here's when this, the, we're going to wait till they do this. We're going to wait maybe till they're on the table. I'm not sure. They're having a fight <laughs> like, with like a we're fish. The that right. You were going to hit anyway? Well, not in the last we not in the last so for for hours <laughs> one through seven, we had uh, a tome in the back of the room that was like a sort of a cheat sheet of that mm-hmm. had a show order on it. Mm-hmm. But it was more like we knew what we were doing and not exactly how we were going to do it for a lot of the scenes. So some some of them, you know, obviously we had some monologues that were like memorized, mm-hmm. but then some of them were like. And now Francisco's going to poison Lisi. Yeah. Or maybe now <laughs> we're, yeah, yeah. And now we're going to do this thing. And there were some things, like there was the Alchemist cooking show um, that was very audience participatory, yes. and it was a riff off of one of the stories. Um, and that, we didn't ever really know how long that was going to go. So right. there were some right. things that were on this like script that were on sort of the tome that was the list of every activity for every hour. And sometimes in the moment... You just, you just had to cut things for time mm-hmm. because we just we 
we didn't want to go too long over time. And the bell um, would ring. And the bell was yeah. on. Well, it wasn't on the, on the hour, but every the hour, hour there yeah. would be church there'd bells. be church bells yeah. that would ring, which would let them know where they were in the day, mm-hmm. and sort of keep and and help us move the audience mm-hmm. out if they. If they needed to go at the okay. end of their so hour. if someone bought like a one to two o'clock ticket, they would be like, okay, the bells are ringing. Yeah. If I need to be somewhere else, or I can go to the debrief room. Yeah, yeah. Did yes. anyone yeah. stay the whole time? Oh, yes. <laughs> I can't be. Yeah, we can't good. believe it. There was one person who didn't even <laughs> go to the bathroom. Leave the room. Right? Two people. Two people. Two people. Two people yeah, that's right. Because we went, we would leave the room to go to the bathroom. Or maybe <laughs> yeah. actually maybe three. We yeah, actually had we had scheduled more than, more we had one. a scheduled bathroom break for Lisi and Francisco <laughs> in there. We did, and uh, Francisco never remembered, so I had to come usher him out. Maria had to come <laughs> and get him. It was harder so, for him because his character drank a lot of wine. <laughs> so yeah, so there was this there was this loose script. There's like series of events. So I had that too, and the reason I had to do this live sound design thing it was, it was just it was no way I was going to make eight hours of sound in any you know reality but um, you know and I only had you know a few weeks to prepare actually so <laughs> I, I kind of had to do it on the fly and just sort of meet whatever they were doing and then there was a couple scenes that they knew they were just were going to wait for the lights and sound to change to tell them mm-hmm. to start that mm-hmm. and it's it's started this whole other uh, yeah. narrative for that that section. And I will say with this pe- with this piece, um, I even though we I haven't been a company for that much time, the at least the four of us who are sitting there, sitting here, and some of our artistic associates, we've worked enough together that for something like an eight hour durational piece where everything hinges <laughs> on like improv and understanding and listening and cues, um, that we couldn't have done this piece when we first got started with each other. Because we're sitting here describing all of the structure that we put into this, and I'm thinking about it now. Like we put, There were so many structural elements that I hope were invisible to the audience, oh, yeah, um, yeah. but that for us it was just like, oh, and then we'll do this, and we we're can add this. We're basically telepathic at this point. Yeah, and so we, we had, we've developed this language with each other yeah. about how we make immersive theater that allows us to do something like this with just, I mean, not a few weeks of preparation for uh, Lisi and Francisco. We were working on the content for much longer, but in terms of the structure... The technical aspect. The technical aspect, it was a few weeks. weeks, And it allowed us just the shorthand that we have with each other now um, and and understanding of what we need for an immersive show. I think we couldn't have done that much earlier, but we can, you know, we can, we can accomplish it now. (laughs) But even then we did it, we were able to do it three times all the way through. and each time we learned more, and each time we added—I don't say—we added new things, but we certainly it got more structure. It got more structure, and it exactly. tightened up. And yeah. by the third time, it re- it did really feel Great. sustainable. It was like, oh, we can do this. We can just do this eight-hour show. We're fine. Four hours of immersive theater by that point. Yeah, yes. twenty-four it hours was. of immersive theater. <laughs> exactly. And we were able to say that last year alone, we created seventeen hours of new content. Wow. So eight hours was yeah. that, but there was. 17 total. Right, so it was bad. Maybe we should talk a little bit more about some of the other episodes, as well as essentially, um, you know, your home at the Peel. Yes. (laughs) Um, Which, it's uh, going to start getting a a rather intense renovation uh, later this year, so we're going to have to sort of relocate for a little while. But yeah, we have have a pretty pretty nice residency in there. They've been very, very good to us. We've been able to sort of 
remake the place for whatever. It's just it's just adapted well or readapt to it, you know, back and forth. It sort of speaks to us in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And like the the background story of the whole Institute of Visionary History was inspired by the peel that we found these archives in the basement, the archives of the deep now. And that gave us the instructions to build this machine that is the, the experience that you, you go into. And like we, we got that idea from the basement of uh, the PO we call the room of requirement because whatever you have, <laughs> what, it's like the actual room of requirement. It's like what, if you were looking for something, it's like, oh, we need more stanchions or we need more of this. And you just sort of like rummage down there and it just gives you what you need. It's, there it was. It's a weird... This is the real room in the basement. The real room. The real room in the real basement. This yeah. is a real, the real yeah. basement. It's not so we were, house basement. Yeah. Oh. So some stuff you don't even have to make up. So this... <laughs> It, it, in some ways, it did like fully inspire this this piece mm-hmm. in this series, and this what was neat about it is that we kept returning to the peel, but we kept bringing new people into it, and so we have this core team that was able to work on these pieces, and we kept bringing in new people, and we we can indoctrinate them now pretty quickly too in our language, <laughs> and we collaborated with uh, so in addition to Lisa and Francisco. Eight performers, I think. Eight performers total for the, the visionary history mm-hmm. section. And, um, right, and so we did, uh, the first episode was uh, about Harriet Tubman, because mm-hmm. we knew about we wanted... About Harriet. Was, was, well, it was about, in quotes, yeah. yeah. Inspired by, because uh, we, yeah. we always do this thing, even though we, we deal with history a lot, we're always sort of... It's, it's some sort of version of historical It's not fiction. a straight-up right. reading no. of it. And right. it's not Never. a reenactment. Never. We yeah. had a big joke with that one because I, I love Harriet. I think Harriet Tubman is just such a fascinating character. So when I it was my idea at least to introduce with that character because she's from Maryland and so she's and I think she her history itself is not so fully explored. Um, and we wanted to make it clear that it was not a historical reenactment. That like people were not coming to meet Harriet Tubman and learn from her. Um, <laughs> be a little gesture, her be my little reenactment gesture. Um, uh, but that that this so when we're dealing with history, that we're not coming at it from a reenactment standpoint. Although that is very valuable. That's a very valuable way to encounter history. It's just not what our purpose was. Um, and so that also really informed how we created the piece with the two actresses that we had working on it was that we wanted people to encounter a Harriet Tubman that they did not know that was unfamiliar to them um, and use some of her weirder and more supernatural parts of her life um, as part of this, as, as the elements of this piece um, because she did have a really strangely supernatural connection to the world. Um, she wouldn't have called it that. I don't know, but that's, that was kind of how her, how her life was. Anyway, so like when we come at things from history, and that, I think that traveled into um, all of the episodes. Yeah, and we, were, we started also with Mesmeric Revelations. We were saying, we, we, we were telling everybody involved, and we were selling it to uh, uh, the people who ran the location that made it very clear because it was attached to a museum. Um, the building was attached to a museum that this is not going to be an historical reenactment, nor will it be a reenactment of any of Poe's stories. Like, we're, we're using it as a jumping-off point. It was mm-hmm. inspired by, and that some of Poe's words it's, were in yeah, it. Yeah, it's but it was the dirt to dig in. in. Influence, but, uh, yeah. <clears throat> I always think of, like, the Emily Dickinson line, tell the truth, but tell it slant. <laughs> and so it's like we're coming at history, like, from a slant. Um, but and we're just, like, focusing on a different part. Yeah, yeah. focusing Normal on a different narrative. part. Or, yeah, we're sort of, like, opening up a little tear somewhere in the yeah. history and seeing what's seeing what's... The, what is the mythology that we can sort of shove into there that helps us 
look at stories that haven't been told or voices that haven't been heard um, or in ways that we've, we haven't thought about those parts of history yet that will help us in the present and help us move into the future. Right. And for Ms. Um, Merrick, um, the focus was on the, the women in Poe's life and fiction. Mm-hmm. And we found one documentary that talked about it a little bit and it all struck us that, wow, this is a really good underpinning for creating these characters that, that Poe encountered that Poe created, but it's it was like you know he lost or, his wife, he lost with. his mother, lived with, yeah. and lived with, and it was like these. I had all these these women who died around him, and it's like he was asking for a do over in some ways by bringing him back to life in these stories, mm-hmm. um, right? So that so that was our jumping off point of revisiting and making the women the center of it. Then, yeah, I, but I also think that goes back a little bit to the implication of the audience as well. Um, thinking about the women. Um, the character of Virginia in Mesmeric Revelations, uh, I think, was was it went nowhere where we had thought it would go at the beginning of the process. Um, it was this uh, process, almost of like I, I was thinking of it as almost like a, a, a museum sculpture, like a sculpture of a beautiful woman that has been solidified in our mind, becoming a human. And what does it mean mm. to become a full human mm. with your own agency? Um, and that had a little bit of implication for the audience because I think we we do tend to romanticize women of the past and posed why wife and fiancés and the idea of these beautiful women dying beautiful deaths and so we were sort of encountering what is the reality of what it means to watch somebody die from tuberculosis, tuberculosis, from tuberculosis right. and it's not beautiful and it's and there's nothing you can do for them and so what is the reality of that moment within this magical world um, and so that I feel like it's also part of our angle coming at history is not how do we Keep, stay inside this beautiful bubble of magic and whimsy and and romance. Well, maybe we'll start with that, but we're quickly <laughs> going to shatter it and let, and make you feel other things, other things, right, <laughs> right about it. And make you're, you you're the one yeah. who look under the rug, who pick up the rock to see what's growing. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Us. yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the trappings of the whimsy and the trappings of the magic. We like joy. We like joy. We, we like darkness joy. too. <laughs> we have a lot of subversive joy in our pieces. Yeah. Subversive, subversive. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess I'll also say that because uh, this, this helped us lead up to Mass Ravel too is that last year was a journey of bringing more diversity to our casts in a very in a more intentional way. We, we, we tried to do it in a less a, a less intentional way, I guess you could say. Or, or like we were trying to do it, but we didn't. Um, early on, we didn't have like specific reasons why mm-hmm. we wanted to invite people of color into our casts, and we had kept sort of thinking about it and circling around it, and just making more connections out in the community and building trust and, and building trust. You know that we're, we weren't um, just tokenizing, trying, just yeah, trying to avoid tokenization, and um, also we're, we're in a unique position because we devise everything from the ground up. And so we can bring the performers in and really listen to them and get all this input from them. And they, that input becomes the show and they become that character in some ways. So it's not like, okay, we have a script and we put you in the script and you're going to do this thing for us. And you're going to, you know, you'll be representing for whatever community right. you're representing or, or you know, uh, which is fine. Representation is good. It's good to diversify representation. And I don't want to discourage theaters from doing that but we have the opportunity to go a little further and actually bring in like a, their background into the 
show their yeah. unique voices or their unique or their yeah. and their passions and and uh, in is particularly with uh, institute of visionary history let uh, or not let but like in inviting them into our process and then they're the ones sort of steering the piece so they it's steer in, the ship. they steer the ship and we are the support unit for that and we're help where we are behind them helping them get where they want to go with that. Um, so even though the Harriet Tubman idea was my idea and I'm a white person, uh, the two actresses that we, that we had really drove the narrative of the piece um, and what it became. And so then it was like what... Yeah, Tina and Rachel. Tina so they, and Rachel, um, yeah. But you know, it was interesting because they, um, they... I mean, they had no interest in using Harriet Tubman to make... For so that white people can go feel, feel better good, about them, right? about themselves because they saw a Harriet Tubman piece. You know, that, that's not where they wanted to go with yeah, it. Yeah, you were not was, absolved of your racism. And we're, like, <laughs> we're like, all right, let's, let's try this. You know, and yeah. it was a lot of people who came out and were like, okay, that was that was challenging, interesting, <laughs> complicated. We thought, great, yeah, we're yeah. on to yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we definitely also, uh, in terms of the audience too. I th- H. G. Darling was a great example of that. I think because we knew largely that our audiences would probably be white. Um, and so that also allowed us mm. to think about the, Im- implicating them in the show. Not, I mean, no, we have diverse audiences, but, but that it's um, immersive audiences, or at least, you know, in many parts of the country are largely white. Um, and so that allowed us to consider what that would mean for a group of white people to come to a museum opening and look at a humanoid specimen or expect to look at a humanoid specimen um, and sort of play on their whiteness also. Yeah. I should say Justina. Who, oh, gosh. She's, so she's amazing. <laughs> yeah. she, was, she was totally fearless in devising that character. It was, it was you know, the rest of the cast, you know, had mm-hmm. to get comfortable with what we were doing and what she was doing. So but she was ready. She yeah. was kind of like the foil Darling. Yeah, yes. so yes. the two of them are in opposition right. towards the end There's of the sort show. Sort of a romantic yes. frenemies, you might say. <laughs> and it's like rivals, sort of. Um, she definitely wins. She wins. She, she, she wins the show. She wins the show. To me, it seemed like she was kind of hiding her power at first, yeah. and then yes. when she started to let it come out, I was like, "Oh, this is going in a very different direction," <laughs> but I like it. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> um, so. Lisi, uh, with the concept, you were you were interested in the idea of having a humanoid specimen character, mm-hmm. um, and some of the characters were a little a little bit drawn out by the time we cast them. By the time we found the actors for them, that character had the least any kind of characteristics yeah. because we didn't know what we were going to do with it, and we, <laughs> we knew it's this, like we went through this whole journey of like, well. It, it, and we thought the person may, might be imprisoned at some point, or just you or know, in a display but case. Yeah. Like, Darwin yeah. needed some sort of foe or enemy. Right. Yeah. yeah. So and that's we thought, well, it, it, we can't put a woman in a cage, and we, did, we can't put a person of color. color in a cage. We thought well, oh, maybe God. this middle-aged white guy. Yeah. <laughs> and then that <laughs> became really boring. And then <laughs> I baseball cap yeah. or something. And I, I do have a distinct memory <laughs> of sitting in your kitchen in this room that's right next to us and having a conversation about well, maybe rather than going in that direction. Let's just go completely in the other direction because I had worked with Tristina and she and I went to the same grad program here uh, in Baltimore at Towson. Um, and so I knew what she was capable of. Um, and I said, I know this 
actor. I know. <laughs> and I say, I, was like, I, I think that she will have a good perspective. And she's Ghanaian. Um, so she is uh, from Ghana and, and lives in Baltimore now. Um, and I said, I think that she will be interested in taking this character that is a blank slate and creating something really powerful, but mm-hmm. also subversive and also something that the audience will not be expecting because she enjoys doing that. And she has a, an amazing sense of humor and an amazing way of connecting with people. Um, and so that's what we tried out. We were like, let's just dive right into the mess of this and not try to avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also became a driver of the show is that we are going to put this issue at the center of the show, not as something that we're trying to tiptoe around. Um, and that informed a lot of the, the narrative with H.T. Darling also. Yeah. Something that was really amazing to me is we got reviewed very many times for the show, but only in like one or two reviews... <laughs> Did anyone mention anything right. about colonialism or they the were fact all that white reviewers, or the fact so. that H. T. Darling was actually played by a woman, mm-hmm. and right. you know that we, we had put, did I mention that? Did, did we mention no. that? No. I think I might have mentioned colonialism. Yeah, yeah. you did. Okay, okay. You were okay. Maybe a couple it's, mentioned H. T. Darling was played by Sarah. Oh yeah, Thomas, well, who it was, was, but it's like yeah. sort of like, well, why did they make that choice? Right. You know, like, <laughs> Pretty weird choice. And, um, and why choose to cast Trustina in this role? Mm-hmm. And like, what is this role about? You know, it's like very touchy for people, I think, mm-hmm. to talk it about. Was very touchy for people. Yeah. Yeah. But this is, and so you know, we had this whole journey last year of, wait, so there was the Forza Harry Tubbin episode, and then there, what turned out to be four episodes. Um, but we, it was started as we thought maybe it'd be one or two episodes in which these four women. All Asian American, but all from different countries of origin, who we've worked with in some capacity. way, some capacity mm-hmm. in other shows. We thought, oh, let's get them all together and just get them talking and see what happens. And what happened was it turned out to be four discrete episodes because one of them said, you know, I feel like we, all, we always get lumped together and it's going to be really hard to separate us if we... Uh, if we put us together in the mm-hmm. show. But if they each had their own platform. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. And, and we were like, okay, we'll do four. <laughs> four. We'll do four. Oh, four. Time. So, so you were yeah. thinking, three episodes, maybe four. Yeah. And then it became how many? Six. six. <laughs> yeah, and each one was... In three months. <laughs> very different. Yeah, it was... Yeah, very different. And they put out, it happened yeah. in three months, and they were, it was a very intense time. Very anyway, But amazing. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing, and what we, we may uh, rerun a couple of those, because some of them were just a single weekend, yeah. and uh, one a couple of them, the two earlier ones got kind of short shrift, because right. they And it's five people at a time, on. right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't yeah. get that many people through the show. Right, we had right. 80 people on a weekend. Yeah, so. but I think we had, we had slots for, I think it was like 45 to, to 50 people at a night because depending on how many yeah, we ran so, through yeah. it, was it was five 40 it was 40, five, a, night. 40 a night yeah five yeah. people but we we would run each each piece about six five to six times they're like 20 night. minute pieces yeah, right? the, the, yeah the, the meat of it was these 20 minute pieces mm-hmm. so we could and then get, the debriefing after and then you could get mm-hmm. yeah and so yeah. and the way it worked out sometimes it was only one or two people and, and some people got like an extended one-on-one yeah. you know it, at least for each thing except yours um uh there was at least one time where it was done just for one person, just for one. and I was like, "Well, this is gonna be interesting." Yeah, and, um, yeah very they, intimate. It was. They all got a really special experience. Awesome. Um, but I think, I, and then circling back though to this whole diversity angle, I think it's important for us not to break our arms, patting ourselves in the no. back for having done all <laughs> no, this. No, no, um, no. Because we, we don't feel like you know we're, we're definitely not done with this. It's 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 an ongoing mm-hmm. investigation, and uh, but I, we do. 
I do feel like it's just made our artwork more interesting to bring these voices in, and mm. it's it's something we're going to keep on doing. And to be very conscious yeah. about it as well, yeah. and to, and also to understand that we're we're never done with that process. Like we're never right. we're never at the ending of like, and now we're diverse. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we did it. We can't like we're never. It's right. never it's never ending process. Yeah. So just check the box. Yeah, <laughs> we're never going to check that box. And, like, so. and, and for this for Mass Ravel, we finally talk about that. We can use this. As a segue, is that we we have a space once again that is fully accessible. Um, we yes. did, so the peel yeah. has lots of stairs, lots of lots stairs, of stairs so right? Stairs. And there's no elevator. The whole reason we're, we all have to leave in oh, August, they're renovating, they're gonna build an and elevator. I believe um, also a ramp to the front door. Yes, yes. so they, they can yes. say ADA accessible and all that, right. and Yay. that's great. So we, we did we did the show Bats at the beginning of last year. And it was the first thing we did was ADA accessible. And we put that in all our publicity materials. We're like, yay, this is really exciting. And I don't think a single person showed up who was otherly abled. Um, and we were like, well, that's kind of a drag, you know. And I think sometimes immersive theater <laughs> can good. ward people off. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who might have mobility issues. Might have or... mobility issues. Oh, definitely. And yes. um, even though Bats was a mostly seated experience, um, and it was like, you know, five feet from the door and you were like in this other room and you were there. Um, so we thought, let's try to be a little more intentional and a little more welcoming this time. And we're, we're working with uh, a company that serves uh, people with a, with a range of uh, developmental disabilities to physical disabilities. And we're going to bring them in as uh, audience members into our test audience and then have them in the audience during the shows. And then make sure that they're they're just there and they're comfortable and they're participating and uh, it'll help sort of hopefully warm right. up the audience they'll, they'll a little be bit. Visible. Yeah. And they'll, they'll be visible, visible as members yeah. of the community. Um, and it's not like we're making the show about that. It's just part of it. And mm-hmm. we're also uh, making everybody enter through the the disability entrance, which is around the side of the, the, the ADA yeah. accessibility entrance because uh, the front of the Baltimore War Memorial which is a massive space the front of it has tons of stairs and you have to go down and up some more stairs to get into the main space so you, uh, we thought rather than ghettoizing anybody who needs to use the elevator let's just have everybody go through the side and just make it part of it and right they, so that just so, becomes the main entrance yes, yes. That is the main entrance. and we have this and it's just going to be really cool because you have this little journey just to get up into to the main space yeah. And, and part of it, too, I mean, this mass rabble is about trying to think about the community of humanity. So you want the, the broadest number of people, all types of people, <laughs> right. to be types there. And, uh, and so we were, we were really thinking about the ways that we could just keep broadening that circle, keep mm-hmm. widening and widening. Making it more, more accessible. More, more accessible, welcoming. yeah, more welcoming. And it's been, it's really good for us too because we learn from our audiences all the time and I think it'll be helpful for us to understand how do we, how do we keep opening it, opening, opening and welcoming. Mm-hmm. You know, so it is in, a in, dance piece though. Oh, we're not using the word dance. We're not using the word dance. It's not a dance piece. Let me pause garage no, no, it's uh, we're calling a movement, movement piece. Movement piece. And movement so, piece. But it's an ensemble of movers. But you'll see, you will see a, a diversity not just in uh, you know, skin color, but also uh, uh, age and uh, body from type. Um, and body type. And yeah, and we have we have some very young members. Of we the have cast. some children, some children, and yeah. the cast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And everyone and can participate to the extent mm-hmm. that they want to. Exactly. To 
however much they're comfortable with according right. to their own abilities. Yeah, yeah. we're yes. trying to make that clear because, uh, again, people get scared. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. you add a dance and then there's participation if right. you want it. That that me, people, yeah. people get scared by the word dance, so we are staying away from it. And also, I, I don't know if I'd call it a dance piece. It definitely is a, it will be choreographed, but it's a, it is a movement piece in thematically as well as, I think, structurally. Yeah. Yeah. Lisa, you know? <laughs> is that good? Um, Lisa, Lisa, so Lisa's like is the lead artist on this. Oh, I see. So yeah, she was testing us. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I love you. You did it right. Did we do it? Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely a movement piece and not a dance piece. Although we are using buto, which is a dance form, an experimental dance form from Japan, um, as kind of like the basis and the inspiration for our movement. Where. Um, Inviting a guest artist, Yuko Kaseki, who I met in Berlin when I lived there. And was that's where I sort of, the world of Butoh opened up to me. And I was like studying it a lot. And she, I was in a piece of hers when I was there. And just for a really long time, I have been wanting to bring that element to the performance scene here in Baltimore. And so the way this project happened, it was kind of um, perfect timing with sort of all of the, the major things that are going on in the world right now, the, the, you know, refugee crisis and all of these big movements of like lots of bodies across the planet. Um, and just our crazy political situation right now. Um, so that, uh, combined with seeing the war memorial for the first time and being like, Oh my gosh, this would be the perfect place to do a large ensemble Buto based mm-hmm. piece. Um, those things all sort of puzzle pieced together and, um, and now we're making it. And yeah, I think the idea with the casting is that, um, yeah, the, like our cast, they don't necessarily have like a, a formal dance background. And that's kind of not what Buto is about. Like it's kind of about finding your own authentic movement and being really organic about it. And um, another reason is because we're asking the audience to kind of be um, participants not that they'll be doing like performing to the extent that we will, but that it's, we want to like really equalize with the audience and make them a part of it. And, um, we're not sort of trying to like intimidate them with like, um, dance, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're not dancing at them. Yeah. It's like um, a kind of community yeah. movement. And the war and the war memorial as a building is very different for us because um, it is it's a giant mausoleum essentially and so it's an enclosed space and a giant enclosed room but marble. it's marble room but it's a big open space and so this is very different for us in that there are no different rooms there's no different floors except for when you come in and you're going to go on a journey but everybody's in the same space mm-hmm. for the entire time it's just a giant space and so we're that's really right. different for us to think about how we're moving it is how yeah. we're moving the audience around and how we create different uh, different uh, tableaus and different spaces within this giant space but being all together the whole time right we're in the boat we're in the boat yeah. we yeah. are <laughs> together there'll, there'll still be that certain certain amount of simultaneity mm-hmm. and aspects of you you just can't see the whole thing because mm-hmm. some of it's happening like over 50 feet away um, on the other side of the room, and there's maybe you know thirty or forty bodies in between you and the other thing happening. So I think that's going to end up separating it. But uh, we haven't said that you know H.D. Darling was probably H.D. Darling in visionary history. You know we we have super elaborate detailed sets, and this will have nothing for a set. Essentially, there'll, there'll be chairs around the outside. There'll be lights, and there'll be sound, 
Um, and then the War but, Memorial. And, and I mean, building itself. And, and the mask. And mask. Oh, and there, there's masks, if you call it, yeah, part of the sets and yeah. costumes, of course. But, um... The building itself just brings so much to the piece already, just right. as it is. Like, it's mm-hmm. gorgeous. It's got something ominous and sort of, like, beautiful about it at the same and time. And reverential. Reverential. Mm-hmm. There's an eternal flame. Yeah. There's there. an eternal <laughs> flame. Spoiler alert. There's an eternal flame. <laughs> no, no memorial. And I think it'll, like, bounce off, you know, interact with our themes really well. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, you know, names of so many people on the wall and just, like these massive historic events that have influenced like giant mm-hmm. groups of people like yeah. war I mean it's a memorial yeah. to those who have died in wars yeah. so that's I mean that <laughs> in itself already is, is a very uh, heavy weight to be walking into um, mm-hmm. and just like with all of our other pieces we try to incorporate that into the piece we try to honor it by bringing it as a as a collaborator but it won't be all gloom and doom it will no. not <laughs> submersive always has like a little wit hidden in there somewhere yeah joy best rebel baltimore war memorial uh coming this april yes the first two weekends in april i think the first uh like ticketed test audience is the third or the fourth? The fourth. The fourth. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, preview is the fifth, so Friday uh, the sixth is official opening night. I think yes. the fifth is a Friday. Fifth is a Friday? Mm-hmm. So it is three, four, five. <laughs> Wednesday, Thursday, <laughs> Friday. Oh, <laughs> our stage manager's not here. Yeah. She'll be here soon. She'll be here soon. I'm a successful producer. Of <laughs> of works. All right, well, uh, April, Wednesday the third is a uh, potentially free if you uh, is to pay what you want mm-hmm. it could be free also Thursday potentially free and then um, we, we always do the sliding scale ticketing so even like the lowest level tickets is, won't kill you um, especially compared to your crazy New York prices <laughs> I, I take no responsibility <laughs> if I could charge $120 um. I would um, okay so fr- uh, yeah Friday the 5th and then, and then it's going to run through uh, the, the following weekend will be the 12th 13th and 14th and that's it. it. Six, um, yeah, mm-hmm. six, shows, six shows, six official shows. And tickets are on sale. Tickets are now on sale. And there's no possibility of an extension. No possibility of an extension. None. Absolutely none, no matter what anyone else does or tells you. And if you find Glenn wandering around the Wilmer Memorial, it's because he's trying to extend. Well, awesome. Thank you all so much for this lovely conversation. I hope you had as good a time as I did. Such a pleasure, Catherine. Thank you. All right. Once again, I want to thank our guests, Glenn Ritchie, Ursula Markham, Susan Stroop, Lisey Stoussel, and of course, our guest host, two weeks in a row here, managing editor, Catherine Yu, without whom no pro would fall apart completely. That is not an exaggeration. Um, hey, um, I'm, I'm going to talk to you guys about everything immersive in a second. Um, the Facebook group. Um, we, we there, there, One day there may be something that isn't just the Facebook group. That's that's another topic for another day. Um, but first, I actually forgot for a second what it is I want to talk to you guys about. Uh, oh yeah, um, we're we're we finally got around. Like in February, 
which seems like nine years ago, um, we announced, uh, cause I just, I had a slightly busy February, just, you know, uh, a summit and moving my mother, um, <laughs> a process, which is still kind of ongoing. We haven't, we haven't finished it. For those of you following Noah's life, uh, everything's still in bins. Um, <laughs> And I do want to thank some of the members, um, some of the folks down here in LA, uh, or, you know, take, take a pause here for a second. Um, Spencer Williams and Ray Moscow, um, uh, you know, totally showed up, uh, along with another friend of mine. Um, and I just want to shout out those two guys, uh, who are members of the community here in LA. Spencer, of course, makes, uh, produces some brilliant work and I'm really looking forward to, uh, we're going to be dropping a review of, uh, Tales by Candlelight, which is a new experience he's got. And we've got a podcast that's going to be going up uh, in early April, the day when uh, the, the the beta is over and public tickets are going to start to become available. So um, if you're wondering, you know, why, if you've been hearing little rumors about Tales by Candlelight and wondering, like, why isn't Nobro talking about it yet? It's because we're waiting for the day when everyone can get in on it. So there you go. That's what's up. But we, we may put the review up beforehand. Ke- Kevin got to go check it out, and he's he's writing up right now. Okay, so there's that. And then Ray Moscow, who is, uh, he, he came up and, and volunteered at IDS, and he is an organizer in the VR XR scene here in LA. And I just want to give shout outs to both of them on the show today, because uh, they, they, they came out in my, literally in my hour of need, that luckily, thanks to them, turned into our 20 minutes of need, because... We just done took that truck apart. Okay, so that's all that. Oh, I'm gonna follow up on U-Haul. They overcharged me. Um, yo, let's. Um, oh, right. So the other thing, um, we are starting to onboard some new reviewers. Uh, thank you, everyone who volunteered. Our bandwidth is like totally like kind of crammed up right now. So we'll 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 do some more stretching and 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 reorganizing and probably like turn to some folks to be like, yo, we need some editing help um, in order to kind of shake things down and just provide you with more of that smooth, smooth content you just want to consume. No, wait, that's not how we're, no, that's not how it goes. Well, what am I saying? No, um, covering all this is so exciting. And indeed, uh, I'm stoked that we have this website that would very much, and if you don't go to the website, if you just listen to the podcast, um, hi, welcome, you're new. Um, go to the go to the website, nopersidium.com, because uh, there's way more there. Um, I don't even read everything that's on the site anymore. Um, I just want to confess that, all right? I'm in confession mode right now. I don't want, I, I, I want to, I don't have the time to because we put so much stuff out. Um, I do, I do stuff down and, and read uh, whenever I can because I like to keep up, but there's between Catherine and probably like a couple of like the, the fans out there, they probably have a better idea of what's on my website than I do. Um, which, uh, frightens me, but also makes me excited. Uh, there's so much that's going on. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's so much. Um, insert plea to like help us go professional. Um, what, uh, so yeah, so what I'm saying is there's going to be more and, uh, just, just brace yourselves cause, uh, things are about to get nuts this year. Okay. There's that. Let's talk a bit about, uh, one of our communal watering, watering holes. We have two big communities that, uh, and I can say big because they're in the four figures, um, two big communities that we manage slash help manage. One is the no pro slack, which you can get to at bitly.com slash no pro slack. If you're not a member, 
Um, and, uh, and that one's got over a thousand people in it. It's, it's kind of more creator focused. Uh, a lot of the design summit, you know, community has managed to like kind of give it that focus right there. Um, and, but it's still, it's got all the powers of Slack. So there are alerts and whatnot. So people can kind of keep up to date and, um, some of, some of the same, some of the same vibe and moderation rules apply. Uh, to everything immersive, which is our Facebook group, which has over 5,000 people in it um, and is uh, definitively global. And it is uh, uh, an oasis at times uh, of both uh, creators and audience members, right? Uh, patrons, co-creators, uh, depending upon your point of view and depending on what the work is. Okay, so um, the relationships are simple for those who are like, oh, how does it all sort out? EI is a co-production uh, between us, uh, our friends at Room Escape Artist, R Ricky Ruganti. Uh, also, uh, hanging around, helping to moderate our, our buddy Jeff Heimbuck from Horror Buzz here in LA. Uh, Carly Blair, uh, who's up on approvals, uh, who's uh, one of the performers here in LA. Uh, indeed, Susan Stroop, uh, uh, who is really great at helping conversations move along, particularly the big conversations and kind of keeping them on track. She, she's jumped in a few times uh, and has the powers of a moderator. Um, and everyone is doing this on a volunteer basis. Um, and Steph is usually helping when people are at work and everyone does the best they can. Uh, no one is really getting paid to do that. I don't even consider what we get on the Patreon to be paying to do the Facebook or, or the Slack because <laughs> that would be insane. Um, and if you, you do the math, it would somehow start magically becoming negative money. So I don't like to think of it in terms of, you know, work, labor, et cetera. But the truth is people invest their time and, um, they invest their focus and, a lot of people watch what's going on there. They don't necessarily talk, but they do watch. Um, we had to change some rules or really add some rules this past week um, because uh, of a thread that got hot. Um, as you can tell by now, I don't really like shutting people down unless they cross some big bright, bold lines. Uh, those big, bright, bold lines are insulting people directly, threatening them, uh, calling them names. Um, things start to get fuzzy when folks are being combative. Some folks, particularly their online personas, are just naturally combative, right? There's a, there's a positioning they take, a footing they stand on, uh, where it's everything, you know, you feel like you're dealing with a defense attorney or something, or you've got someone who clearly did some debate club in high school. Um, I, I've rolled like that in the past. I don't anymore. I'm not saying I moved on from it. I'm, I'm not trying to like shut someone down for doing those sorts of things. Um, but I do know out of my own experience that I often found that people weren't hearing me and I definitely wasn't hearing people when I, I kept in that stance. There are times when that stance is absolutely required, right? No doubt. Um, 
but here's the big thing. Um, people need to remember that the people on the other end of the terminal they're typing into are people. Oftentimes, particularly in certain parts of the community, they are people you know in real life. Um, I always try and pretend like when I'm online, I'm being, I'm being myself and I'm trying to talk to the other people as people. I, I, I carry that with me as I moderate. Um, and I, even when, you know, I err on, like I said, I err on the side of letting people say their piece. Um, mostly cause I don't want people crawling up in the DMS and saying like, why are, why are you shutting me down? Why are you shutting me down? Why? And, and people have done that in the past. And I, I, I don't really respond well to that. Just, I want to let you know, like if, if someone does that, um, particularly if they've gone off, no one's done that this week, please don't start reading between the lines. No one did that to me this week. They've done it in the past. Um, I, and I've absorbed those lessons. So I try to let people say their piece, but here's the thing. Ain't nobody got time when we're not getting paid to play the role of classroom teacher, right? We don't have the time. So what I'm telling you all is our patience is gone. It's just gone now. Expect the moderators to be a little more twitchy when it comes to closing up a thread. If stuff looks like people aren't living up to the standard we'd like people to have, the aspirational standard, then um, we're going to shut a thread down um, if need be. We will warn people um, behind the scenes and just ask people, yo, I don't think people are hearing you. Because I don't, I don't see conversation happening here. Um, maybe, maybe step back from the computer for a while. I'm a second chances person. I'm a third chances person. I'm an old baseball fan. So it's three strikes and you're out right now. Um, I don't want to unleash the band hammers. I don't enjoy it. I do have this visual in my head of them like rising up out of, you know, like, like the ground and a box opening and them shiny, um, you know, so maybe a little part of me has the megalomania, but it isn't freaking conducive to a community to just boop on people all the time. But we have not even started to use all the tools that are at our disposal. And what I really don't want to do is make the community moderated posts only. That's going to slow down everything. But we have those tools at our disposable, <laughs> disposable, <laughs> disposal, and we'll use them if necessary. The vast majority of everyone stays chill. And we do this for all of you. 
I know folks are passionate. I know folks believe deeply in their positions. Just want everyone to remember that pretty much no one wins an argument on the internet. So maybe, you know, don't bother too hard. Like a little, a little bit, you know. Blog posts are good. Status updates are great. Comment sections. How much how much good has been done in the world because of comment sections? Can can we be real here for a second? How much? Some. Is it outweighed by the darkness? No, no, not at all. Not really. And when we get scaled up to where there's like five thousand people. You know, it's it's really easy to just act like folks don't matter. The thing about immersive as a form, the reason why this is interesting as well as being a necessary thing, is I see immersive as a response to the ways in which online culture has gone wrong. The things that we've learned about ourselves as a society, as we organize on a grand scale, are immense. And this drive to get back to real-time, live, in-person presence and connection is our instinctual answer to the ways in which Digital media have disconnected ourselves from what it means to be human. The tools we are given to communicate with have a bias towards performative acts that inevitably alienate people from each other. A soul from a soul, because it demands a mask. The paradox of immersive is that we use masks, personas, in order to reach through to what is truly human, that connection between us. Now you'll note, I'm not talking about any of the shows or the, the design questions that were talked about. And that's a shame because we had gotten so far away from talking about the things that matter to us all and start focusing on how we're having the conversation. Although deep down inside, those questions about how we design our spaces and our narratives and our interaction are about how we're having conversations with each other. What is the social contract underneath the systems we create? The narrative systems, the IT systems, these acts of transformation that our culture has been going through have been done largely in an unconscious fashion. They've been pursuing Speed and profit 
but not necessarily fidelity. Some things like speed, particularly getting rid of lag time, is necessary for fidelity, but they are not sufficient. So I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, actually the how is the what. We, we got here to this because the questions that are being asked deep down, how does the internet tell a story? How do people using the internet tell a story? What does, what does group thinking on societal problems lead to? All of these things are embedded in the works, particularly when we're dealing with alternate reality experiences. All of these are embedded in the works. Of course we're going to have these conversations. Of course things are going to go off the rails. What I want everyone to hopefully hold on to is the idea that we're supposed to be finding better ways of communicating with each other. Okay, I'm going to go full nerd. Um, there's a concept in um, Greek philosophy. Um, you've heard it pronounced a few ways. Um, in, back in college, my professor called it arete. Uh, A-R-E-T-E is the spelling. It means excellence, right? Um, it's often, you know, linked to like athleticism, et cetera, et cetera. But there's, there's a, a way of applying this concept and yes, for you role-playing game nerds in the audience, totally Arete is in mage. Well, let's not do that. There's ways of applying this concept uh, to matters of um, the spirit, if you would like, or psychology and behavior. The pursuit of excellence doesn't just mean the pursuit of personal perfection or of power. Excellence isn't one's ability to manipulate reality. Excellence is the conditions of reality that are left behind based on our actions, whether those are personal conditions or collective conditions. That's what I've learned over the years. So, Look, um, what I'm trying to say is this. Um, if you don't like seeing fights happen on EI between people, uh, if you think we should step in sooner, you're in luck. We're going to step in sooner. Um, people don't like it. Um, will police tone more? I don't particularly like the idea of saying the words will police tone more. It's not really my jam, but it feels like it's, Necessary, at least for a while. Okay. Um, I'd prefer for us to find this happy medium together. Um, but there we go. That's what's up over on EI. Um, yeah. Because like I said, we, 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 we don't really have the time and the bandwidth to do it in a, in a, in a nice slow way. Okay, y'all, um, that was another long thing. Uh, I hope most of you didn't listen to it because, uh, frankly, 
um, you know, uh, bully pulpit is not what I really enjoy using this part of the thing to do. But I feel it's my responsibility to explain, you know, where I'm coming from when it comes to things like this. Um, you know, when we started out making this thing, um, or even when we launched it, like I didn't say, Oh, I'll become a community manager or I'll do this and I'll do that. Um, uh, I, I, I know two things. One, <clears throat> um, juggling all these things, balancing these plates is, is hard. Um, it's a responsibility and, um, responsibility I wish I had more bandwidth for. And when I am off taking care of my family, I can't jump in and moderate a discussion online when I'm moving boxes, um, and driving U-Hauls. So, um, there's that. And the other thing is, um, if, if you're out there and you're like relishing the power, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let me tell you from one megalomaniac to another, uh, you, uh, you, you don't really want in on this sandwich. You don't, um, like, you know, yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put it that way. That doesn't mean I'm walking away. It doesn't mean that uh, I won't do it. Uh, but look, this is about service. I found my path in serving you. So just so you know, that's what's up. That's why we're here. Oh yeah. I really hope you guys didn't listen to this one. Um, anyway, but there you go. You felt like it. It's there. Uh, more anon. Um, and hopefully next week, no lengthy end of show rant thing. Be good to each other. Let's do the credits. Okay. Uh, the music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. You can find No Persinium on patreon.com slash no persinium, where you um, give us money to make us keep doing this thing. Um, <laughs> its own reward and punishment all at the same time. You can con- you can find everything we do at nopersinium.com. You can find us uh, at bit.ly.com slash no slack is one of our communities. We're at no persinium on Twitter and on Facebook. Everything Immersive is the Facebook group. We're at no underscore proscenium on Instagram, which is just fun, fun, fun. The Instagram's fun. If you don't want to deal with anything else, just go on the Instagram. Um, and uh, our sustaining backers are Jan Budman, Lonnie Hansen, Ari Hurstan, Mark Balthazar, Sam Kinkin, and Ross Sigworth. My name is Noah Nelson. I've been doing this for five years. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>